yeah, we did our therapy work, and now we're here to play fools. Yeah, it's motherfuckers. <laughs> we're armed with mental health knowledge. I'm Erin, the Master of Mediocrity. And I'm Jessica, the Lieutenant of Literature. And as you might have guessed from the fact that we said we read a book, this is another cringy, soul-bearing episode of Book Club! Woo! Book Club! Book Club! As we promised in the last Book Club, I'm sick of this shit, and we're going to read something light and fluffy that's just about depression instead of, you know, all the other cringy... Uh, trigger warnings that we've been talking about. <laughs> As you know, so, there's nothing more lighthearted than de- chronic <laughs> depression. Exactly. <laughs> this is what brought me joy when I was in college. I don't know what you read, Erin, but <laughs> this is the kind of shit I was into. <laughs> no, uh, I was in college around the same time, and yes, I loved the chapters that one could find online, not realizing that it was also a book. So, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, my God, that's totally true. It, me, adulting, all the things. And by that, if you're of a certain age range, you could probably guess what we're talking about. Hyperbole and a half. For this one, we read Unfortunate Situations, Flawed Coping Mechanisms, Mayhem, and Other Things That Happened by Allie Broche. So, yes. hyperbole and a half is something that kind of spawned out of the mind of this 20 early 20 something woman who had a blog spot back in the day whenever you could have a blog and mm-hmm. have it actually get attention <laughs> and uh so it's this fun like half and half type thing kind of relevant to one of the tweets she put out recently Erin. it's text heavy comics or picture heavy books mm. like it, it's it's something that's mm-hmm. kind of hybrid and i first read today's book after i discovered hyperbole and half when i started college my freshman year it was probably stumbled upon if i'm gonna be completely honest with you that brought me to hyperbole and a half because that's also the only way that i could find things online whenever i first started kids if you don't know what stumbled upon is good for you like <laughs> It's not worth much now, I don't think. But back in the day, it was how I found the cool stuff. And God help me. This is a hard chapter of my life to look back on. It's the cringiest. And this book is really... I should have seen this coming. It is a... In the style of how blogs were. And if you don't know what blogs are, they're the written version of vlogs that, you know, everyone actually (laughs) uses now. Instead of just being able to tweet your thought at any minute, you had to compose an article about it. Yeah. So it was sort of weird vignettes into the childhood and memories of this one woman who, like I said, was an early 20-something, you know, white, middle class, like privileged, but also like just person. You know, she's just your average privileged person and kind of talked about like her quest for mental health and stuff and it was a very it was the best of times and it was the worst of times and it was a very times this was what mattered to me at the time and as we talk about it i think i'll be very sad about that but you know everyone goes through growth and we're here for the learning and the growing and the reading things Mm -hmm. in the cultural context of how they were written. So like we'll try Mm -hmm. to not let 
my sense of self-loathing for the narcissistic piece of shit I was in college reflect too heavily on this book <laughs> as we're doing this. So, Erin, had you read this book? Mm-hmm. I had not read the book. But you had read the blog. Some of the blog. I mostly read snippets from this one because it was so popular and relevant. Like at the time, like it permeated everything. It became, it was meme level. Oh yeah. Or if I want to make myself sound old and out of place, it was fire. No, I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. (laughs) Well, I I still see the old thing. (laughs) clean all the things meme and you know she's got a very fun oh, yeah. artistic styling that she uses to good effect i i do still genuinely find her images funny why don't you tell me what you think about it and then we could talk about what i think about it now that i've read it again <laughs> sure i read the funny chapters about depression when it was really popular because that was what was relevant because dog ownership and having a goose loose in your house maybe weren't as relatable in your collegiate years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas the chronic depression and, you know, relearning feelings might have made more of an impact. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first read it, I was like, yeah, this is totally what it's like. And I knew it and I got it. And it was hilarious. But on the second read, it like I still knew it was supposed to be funny. And there were still parts where it's like, I get that. I still get that. But it was actually the chapters about life that I found more relatable and hilarious. And it's like just a different, I don't know, it's like just a different part of my generation, our generation's nihilism, you know? Like, because I think whenever Mm -hmm. the chapters about depression came out, we all were like, hell yeah, college sucks. The market sucks. Everything is crashing and broken. And we we have no (laughs) future. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Uh, So those chapters are like, yeah, everything is meaningless and hilarious. And now it's like 10 years later and Mm -hmm. things are still going. (laughs) So when people are like, oh, my God, everything's meaningless and it's hilarious. I'm like, yeah, and yet you're still going to wake up tomorrow. (laughs) The joke's not as fun anymore after 10 years. Yeah. I'm tired. A decade later, I'm tired. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the first read through, and I, I kind of gave you a stinger for this when we were talking about when we were going to record, but the first read through, I was like, oh my God, she's writing the truth right now. It was just this mind blowing experience for me because the difference between the book format and the blog, nihilism is sort of like the sprinkles to the, to the ice cream sundae. Whereas this book is kind of formatted around her mental health crises that she was like experiencing and living with and it was like the center of instead of like you know like being a nice little seasoning for this funny stories that she's telling to try to get engagement it was like i'm going to tell you a narrative about my mind as it is right now right and Mm -hmm. like how did i get to the place that i'm at now and i (laughs) you made the comment that there wasn't another book for me to binge and there is actually another book for me to binge after this and it's formatted in the same way it's called called Solutions and Other Problems. And I still have a very deep emotional connection to that book that she's put out seven years later. So I know she's grown as a person and I'm not trying to judge her on her decade old self either here. You know, like this is like, I related so much to her book that it it hurts me, but I am so grossed out by it now that I've read it again. And I had asked you, I was like, have you ever read a book that made you realize you're not depressed? (laughs) Because that's what that's I realized what when did. I read this book. I was like, okay. Yeah. 
I was like, I am no longer depressed. And I was heavily, heavily just immobily depressed. And I had no idea. I read this book, cripplingly depressed, like probably should have been on medication and or in some sort of like monitoring situation. And it just never occurred to me that, hey, this is me. I'm also depressed. It was like, oh, yeah, no, I also know the feeling of not wanting to be alive, but also being too demotivated to do anything about it. And it's probably not a good idea. Anyway, I don't actually want to die. You know, like, I'm like it's fine. And then yeah. I just never thought of it again for like four or five years after that until I finally went into a therapy <laughs> regime. <laughs> and so now I'm reading this again. And I'm like, oh, it was a weird experience for me because I went through therapy, found out that not only was it like the regular anxiety and depression, but I actually have a case of OCD that is not, I mean, like it's well manageable. It's not a big deal. But some of the, the thought processes that Allie goes through in her book talking about how she's a shitty person because she only wants to be a good person because that's what she wants, but she has shitty impulses. So the shitty impulses mean that she's actually a shitty person. That reads to me like my moral OCD. Like you have to go through these ridiculous rituals to get to the right action and the right thought and the right motivation. And if you don't do all of those three things, anything bad that happens to you is your fault because you're shitty. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> This woman's pathology and mine are very similar, and I had no idea. This was, like, three or four years before I, like, got clued into my own pathology, and I was like, yeah, this book is magic. And then now I'm reading it, like, a couple years later, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> this hurts me <laughs> to read this again, because it's just so... Ugh. It reads as, like, kind of narcissistic. It reads as extremely self-centered. And, I mean, like, it's just it's really hard to navigate those kinds of pathologies because that is, that is what it turns into. It's a very like when you're all of your rituals are around, you have to do the exact right thing or everything that happens that's wrong is your fault. All you're doing is just staring at yourself in a mirror, picking out all of the bad things. Like that's all you do all day long. And like, heaven forbid anybody try to say anything different, but you want them to. Oh my God. Do you want them to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I I was reading this and I know people talk about cringe, right? Like you look back and mm -hmm. everything is so cringe or, you know, accepting the grace in your cringe <laughs> and things mm -hmm. like that. But I, I was reading that and I remembered when I went through that existential crisis and I just kept thinking, was I this insufferable? <laughs> like reading it again and having it reflected at me, I'm just like, yeah, I know. I was like that. Fuck off. You know, like I don't want mm -hmm. I don't need to sit in that shame. You can't shame me for this. And so when I was reading it and she was kind of expressing her own shame about that, I was like, no, no, I refuse to play this game. I will not feel bad about having done that. I will not feel bad about getting to the point where I've accepted that and accepted the other growing points. I was like, I'm not going to feel bad. And she was feeling bad. And I was like, fuck you. Ask your friends if you're a good person. <laughs> just, just like, <laughs> like, I felt so much like I wanted to fight her. And I, I, you know, I'm glad she has another book. And of course, this is a screenshot in time from 2013 or whatever. But it was like still that process of me sitting in there and being like, I'm not going to feel bad. And her projection of shame, I felt so threatened. <laughs> I was like, no, oh. no. No, and not like actual threatened, but it, 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 I was like, I'm a fight. I'm a fight this. I don't feel bad. No, I got through this. And uh, it's definitely one of those things where it's, I've experienced this in mental health. It's called projection. 
<laughs> or counter transference. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whenever mm-hmm. you have a client who like triggers stuff in you, because I've dealt with that with some parents and with some clients, I was feeling counter transference. And it was definitely one of those like, get through it, Aaron, it's fine. But I was like, what if a client comes up and it's like, oh my God, the world's not working because it's my rules or am I a bad person because I think about whether or not I'm a bad person? And I bet I would just sit there and go, ah! <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, bad just- people don't think about if they're bad people. Or if they do, they Uh, still make bad decisions. And are you actively choosing the better decision? Then you're not a bad person. Because guess what? Human beings aren't born with inherent perfect morality, just kind of this selfish nature to continue to survive. And you choose whether or not to participate in culture. That's I think that's the end of my rant. And if you choose to do the (laughs) pro-social things that keep you alive and the people around you alive and unharmed, then you're a good person. Because morality Uh, uh, is fucking, what's that word? Relative. I'm done. Oh, you're relativist. That's interesting. (laughs) <laughs> i mean no uh, i got some general hard lines in the sand but for all <laughs> intents and perf- purposes i'm not going to be a eurocentric white asshole who's like my morality is the best morality and even though <laughs> and that's the reality everybody should use and i only think that my morals are perfect because i'm arrogant and eurocentric and the only moral system i know is my own and that must mean it's right that's the inherent oh. anyway yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, I looked at it and the blog started in 2009 and the book was released in 2013. So you were correct. I actually graduated high school in 2009 and I graduated from college in 2013. So I cannot think of a more perfect snapshot of the hell that was my <laughs> college personhood at that time. Well, and you know what? I think the things that cringed me out, that triggered me, as it were, into that, like, into that counter-transference that you were talking about. It wasn't so much the selfishness or all of that stuff or the, like, am I a bad person, like, because I do this selfishly or whatever. Because, like, I had kind of, I've got the convenient write-off of, like, that's all because of my ritualistic OCD thinking habits that I can just ignore now because now I know what they are. And I wasn't so like, I, you know, it was one of those things where I wasn't aware of it. So I thought that was how the world worked. And all of these like weird rules that she's talking about making for herself. Like I was like, oh God, that hits real close to home. <laughs> I love the idea of you just standing there and going, wow, that's a flawed coping skill. I'm going to ignore <laughs> that. And just moving on. <laughs> like, hmm. <laughs> hmm. Okay. That was a bad <laughs> life survival lesson that I learned. We're going to accept that. We're just going to keep going. That 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 life lesson is probably lying to me. We're just going to do the opposite. And really, that's a coping skill. <laughs> that's how that works. <laughs> that is the basis of coping skills right there. No, I'm not even kidding. When I have anxiety attacks, I'm like, everyone hates me. I have to look at somebody or I have to sit there and go tell myself, no, you're wrong. <laughs> And here's evidence why. And I go, okay, I'm just going to ignore that. And then I just keep doing that. And every time I'm like, God damn it, I fucked up. The world is going to burn. I'm like, I have to tell myself it didn't last time. And you're like, you're right. So this is a fail. Keep going. That's coping skills. There we go. We broke it down. If you have a panic attack, do the opposite. (laughs) Do the opposite. That's not effective advice. Don't do that. The only thing that I think she doesn't kind of, well, she might a little bit obliquely call out of the, of the big things that I ended up having to work through in therapy 
are the um, intrusive thoughts. But I think she does a little bit because she's talking about throwing sand at kids. So oh, I think yeah. I think she. I think she does have some. She just hadn't maybe identified that when she'd written this book. Because you can tell that she's going through therapy and medicine and stuff. Like, you can tell she's working on it as she's writing this, which is probably why it, it hit me so hard. It hooked me because it was somebody a little bit further in their therapeutic journey than me who was, like, explaining in a funny relative way that, like, a way that I could relate to that, oh, yeah, this is what's happening. This is how it plays out. And this is the humor that we can derive from the fact that life sucks. And Oh, my God. It's absurd. Absurdism. I was just talking about absurdism with somebody else earlier today before recording. It's come full circle. This explains everything. We're not nihilists. Our generation is full of absurdists. uh, Yeah. No, really. It's like what you end up with after you've decided nihilism is boring. You're like, so we'll laugh about it. It's fine. Everything's fine. I think you've heard me say that a few times. (laughs) The parts that were the most cringy for me were the things that I thought were okay and sort of the tone that it came off with in a post. (sighs) I've done this podcast especially has helped me kind of formulate, I want to say a course for myself to be a bit more cognizant of my place in the world and how I speak and how that affects other people or how I read things and internalize like, oh yeah, that's how it works because this book told me that's how it works. And then, you know, like breaking that down and stepping back from that, which is, I think my favorite part about this whole process, I mean, like, yeah, it's fun to get engagement and stuff, but like my favorite part is just being able to have good conversations with you and have somebody that, you know, not doing this in the echo chamber. So it's more effective, right? Yeah. I call that embracing one's mediocrity. And I know it doesn't sound like the same, but it's totally like, it's just embracing one's mediocrity. That's why. But this book was written in 2013. You are the master. You're you're leading me through this journey. So so this Here book says something. There's there's a character in this book called Simple Dog, and oh, one God, of the Simple first chapters. I love Simple Dog, and Simple Dog is probably one of my favorite comedic devices that she has in all of her comics, except for the really outrageous childhood stories, which I related to a lot because I've told you before my family's very narrative. So I ended up hearing a lot of stories about myself as a small child, as like a character that wasn't myself. So I was like, yeah, no, this is how I think about my life too, Allie. Exactly. But other than the childhood stories of the deranged creature that she was as an infant, which is as she truly was next level in terms of toddlers. And I really fear (laughs) that. Yes. (laughs) I I do not want to be, I don't want to be birthing one of those, but you know, embracing myself. I'm like, I could be having an Allie. So I gotta, I gotta really work on rolling with life. She also has her dogs and simple dog is simple. But in the first chapter of this book, when she's describing simple dog, she uses the R word a lot. And this was back when I had no problem with that. I was like, yeah, no, of course that dog is the R word. It's a simple dog. But like now I'm older and and hopefully wiser and a little bit more cognizant of like mm, shitty things to say are shitty. So like that kind of set me off on the wrong foot whenever I was rereading this. And then um like moving further into it, it became very apparent to me the privilege that these problems were kind of birthed in. Right. And so then it kind of made me feel like a little bit self-reflective of like, oh, God, the privilege that allowed me to have this kind of specific existential crisis. You know, not that it was an easy one for me to go through or that I didn't 
have to work really hard in therapy to get past that and become a person who was able to give attention to other people. But like, woof, this is this is what people say when they are like, mm, yeah, white women are bad for feminism or, you know, like white people are bad for activism. This is the kind of narrative. This is the kind of thing that like, oh, God, this is a great example of how just out of touch, right? Like a little bit like it, it's it's definitely a point of privilege to have this kind of breakdown, right? Like you don't have this kind of breakdown unless you are safe, really. So I don't know. It was just an interesting like that was the part that cringed me out the worst rereading this book. And the rest of so, it was like, yeah, I've been through therapy like for I, that. I, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. And also we could, we could push through that a little bit and develop a little bit more grace. I think it it's motivated <laughs> by the same chemicals. It's motivated like by the same reactions in a lot of environments. Like it, it's the same <sighs> neurology, I guess, that goes for anybody else who's having their own breakdown. And so this perception of survival and self-protection and it exists in anybody just kind of the potential I think exists in anybody kind of naturally right Mm -hmm. because we all have the same basic neurology and like neurosystem I'm not sure if I'm using the right words (laughs) because I'm a social worker not a scientist so (laughs) what happens with that is that you you can experience regardless of the stressors because your body probably acclimates to whatever softer or more protected or privileged lifestyle you've had. And so stressors that are introduced to it might still feel a degree of threatening or, you know, you just have that natural discomfort in one's life that I think we all have. It's, it's, I I think a little disingenuous to say that everybody is just perfectly content all the time. (laughs) Like, and that's the norm that we should be striving for. Uh, I think people do experience various levels of discomfort, some of which are maybe very indistinguishable. Like, the, And then I think there are just people who experience more and process it in more harmful ways, right? Like, have you heard about people talk about good stress versus bad stress? Actually, no, I don't think I have. Yeah, I, I can't really dive too much into any kind of like scientific data about it, but it's just, I think our perception of stress, like Bad stress is what we think about when we can't function, when we get upset, when we shut down, when you you know you're angry. That's kind of a bad stress, but a good stress is what motivates you. So, like if you're thinking about an upcoming event and you're thinking of all the things that I have that you have to do to prepare for it, the good stress is you taking that pressure. And then going, ah, I'm going to use this. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and the bad stress kind of interpretation would be, ah, this is here. I'm shutting down, you know? So it's oh, really yeah. like, okay. it's kind of, I think, what your outcomes are and also what it does to you and your body. So it's very like, are you able to work with it? And is it helping you kind of resolve the problem or are you kind of shutting down? <laughs> so there, it's like there's just good and bad ways of using stress. Anyway, Where I'm going with that is, yes, there is a specific type of existential crisis one has in privileged circles because it doesn't have any of the environmental components to it. There's no constant hunger. There's no fear of where are you sleeping, no couch hopping, no poverty, no poor health care. You know, you you have this privilege of like having lived a comfortable life and then you're experiencing stressors. And college is a very significant stressor. It's a very unrealistic way the world works when you're in college. 
It's just not, it's not real life. There's nothing that really prepares your body for it. And nearly everybody experiences an existential crisis in college. I remember talking to a therapist at one point who was like, yeah, he had peers who would not do therapy with college kids because of how <laughs> unrealistic and un ephemeral, short-lasting that part of people's worlds are. He just gives medication and moves them on their way because <laughs> no amount of therapy can change the fact that you have 12 tests in two days. <laughs> like, you, you know, like it's just not – It's <laughs> nor That's can amazing. it change the fact that you're like – binge drinking all the time or probably that you're struggling with becoming an adult while still being adolescence you're like in this like really pivotal biological transition relationships mm -hmm. are changing one day to the next like people talk about the drama of high school but then college compounds it because you took high schoolers and then you let them loose into the world right so people oh are getting gosh. jobs for the first time living away from families for the first time some of them might be getting access to drugs and alcohol for the first time you know it's just like insanity just kind of bop, 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 bop. And very few people, even people who are privileged, can deal with that. <laughs> like, you can look at dropout rates for school of, like, people, you know, small percentage of the population enrolls. I'm going to throw out 50%. I don't know the actual number. Whatever. Enrolls after high school. From there, like, maybe 30% drop out after their first year, if not more. Again, I don't know stats. And then from there, the numbers get lower and lower and lower until you finally have the people who graduate. But it's, you know, it just kind of emphasizes like it's fucking weird ass time. <laughs> like It's just a weird ass time is where I'm going. And transitioning from teenagedom to adulthood is weird and it's hard. And it, this kind of existential crisis exists across a lot of socioeconomic statuses as well, because I've seen it in folks who are not privileged enough to go to college. They mm -hmm. still have but are living fairly comfortable lives. They still have very similar crises. And you see it compounded with other things for people who maybe even be like lower down on the privilege spectrum. And so it's just yeah. where I'm going with that is you're right. This is a very specific crisis. At the same time, all of us have the potential for that crisis. <laughs> and you said like dealing with it with more grace. And you're right. I think for how I look at other people's emotional and mental journeys, I have a lot more grace to give other people. I just related so well to this book when I first read it that like looking back on it, I'm not even really looking at Allie. I'm looking at myself and going, oh, okay, so seriously. <laughs> Like, will you seriously please just get over yeah. yourself? You know, and it's just a hard like line to really like do that final. I mean, like, yeah, we obviously have all worked very hard on our coping mechanisms. I'm going to give us that like as a podcast, we have a lot of coping mechanisms between us and we've dealt with a lot of shit. Yay us. But truth, that's the hard last step, I think, is like forgiving that past version of yourself for being like the best they could at the time. You know, and I think for me, it was a little bit weird because I, I didn't actually have the full collapse, the full like demotivation until basically a month before I graduated to probably two years after I graduated was when I became basically, mm. I was, I would say catatonic. It was whenever I was like really mm -hmm. like lost all ability to function in the world, which was great timing because I just I ran home to my grandparents and was like. 
help me. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do anything. I can't feed myself. I can't get out of the shower in less than five hours. Like I really just can't do this. And they were all so prepared for this because of how I was in high school before this, that nobody even like thought, "Mm, maybe Jessica should get some help. They were just like, you know, she's just a little bit more sad than normal. (laughs) No. You know, so (laughs) college, like looking back was miserable. Okay. So I was training to go into the military in college, right? And eventually I decided Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it anymore and I left. And I remember having some peers who were trying hard to get me to kind of stay in and a lot of people who didn't give a shit because I wasn't friends with a lot of people. I don't want to get into that, but uh, (laughs) some of the things that they were saying was, oh, you'd regret this, you'd regret this, you'd regret this. And so I've spent a lot of years thinking about that of like, did I regret leading and part of the accepting who you were at the time or forgiving who you were at the time. I just had to accept who I was at the time. Like I was doing so many things that were making me unhappy and so many things that weren't were miserable that when I got out of there I spent a lot of time and it was bleeding into my job because I was working in mental health right after college right so I was like mm-hmm. oh fuck I need to get my shit together <laughs> it's like I'm working with kids who are close to me in age because I was working with older teenagers and like this is hitting twice as hard because it's my own problem and their problem and I was like okay get your shit together Aaron So it was a very like rough course, like a speed course in survival. (laughs) And um, so I guess I kind of had my breakdown because I would start calling into work sick because I was too exhausted to move. Like it just hurt Mm -hmm. too much to move. And I would do that maybe once or twice a month because it was just, I was so worn out from everything that I was doing. But yeah, I eventually, after starting grad school, I just had to work on just accepting that I was that person at the time and where I'm at now is somebody I like more. And it wasn't even forgiving so much as like, all right, (laughs) you were one step on the path to here. Thanks Mm -hmm. for being there. Don't come back. (laughs) Like, you're not welcome here. I I think that I didn't really learn the lesson about the privilege aspect of it until my breakthrough happened. Mm. Because I had a huge, just massive breakthrough when I got my job. I got a job that paid enough for me to live off of. And that's when I finally was like able to breathe and start functioning again. And I I just, mm-hmm. I still don't know if I could have before that. Like, I just don't think I could have. And like, that's a huge just milestone for me. And I think it, it's really affected the way that I, how I perceive other people whenever they're going through their mental health and emotional health and, you know, like living in their environments. I'm like, yeah, I think people who are able to work on themselves in an effective way, even while still being in that financial stress situation, are superheroes. Not of this world. It just doesn't seem like a reasonable thing that people can do. And when when people do, I'm like, wow, you guys are amazing. <laughs> because I just couldn't. I was completely stymied until I could get money. And then once I started to get money, I started to get a little bit of breathing space and a little bit of like distance between me and that and that depression and that mental health you hell know, hole. I would like to get on another soapbox. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. You're 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 here telling me about okay. about what I don't know when it comes to mental services. It is incredibly the American mental health and the American health system are not designed to reward you for getting better. And I am part of that system because I do eligibility for a service 
that is designed to target children who are at high high risk of being long-term hospitalized for mental health symptoms. And it is also a way to get access to Medicaid for kids because it instead of using the parents' income for Medicaid, it uses the child's income. So if the child has zero income, they're eligible. Yay! <laughs> It is also, unfortunately, a nice tool for parents to get affordable insurance for their child. So they very much fight when I tell them your child's not eligible because they need the health insurance. And it relates to what you're saying because most problems exist, or not all, but a majority of problems could be solved simply if we provided resources to people. Mm -hmm. Public intoxication, that could be solved if somebody had a, a house. And maintaining somebody in housing is cheaper than all of the unpaid bills and warrants that go out because somebody was arrested and spent, arrested for trespassing and public intox and spent maybe 20 days of the month in jail overnight. Okay, you let them out. They have a bill. They don't pay it. There are then court cases and warrants and things and they keep avoiding arrest or whatever. The unpaid cost of that is so much more expensive. Then a year's worth of rent in a cheap $300 to $400 apartment like we can find in our area. Are those good apartments? Usually not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Even the $600 ones, probably not. But they are options. And still housing somebody in those is cheaper than having them be homeless. Also, on top of that, housing them in in an apartment for a year and providing them with case management and medication management services, which includes somebody delivering their daily dosages to them directly so they could just take their meds that day without having to remember to do so on their own, which by the way, is a sk- like a skill and service people need in order to function. Still cheaper. <laughs> so it's, it's very much like these social problems or even these societal problems, because if somebody's homed and they can have their medication delivered to them daily, their daily dosages and take them, that could also help with their schizophrenia, their depression, their anxiety, their alcoholism even. Like there are these significant mental health things that could just be solved by making sure somebody got paid reliably, that they're not continuously stressing about the fact that they might not have bills for the next month, you know, or they could go enjoy themselves and have a moment of relaxation without feeling guilty and needing to pawn their shit. Weird how a livable wage could fucking free up some money to maybe like, I don't know, go see a movie Yeah, because having a good time and a change in mindset is actually part of the needs of life that we don't talk about a lot because it's more of a newer thing and not really on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. (laughs) People's obsession and persistence in like getting drunk or getting high or going out and having fun, seeking changes in mood and mental state is so prominent. Like it's kind of a part of our hierarchy of needs. <laughs> like, we're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. It's not a fucking benefit you can have if you're wealthy. It's something anybody's gonna do. And uh, we might as well accept that. Anyway, whatever. I don't, I think that my soapbox made sense. Livable wages. Everybody deserves health care. Sorry if you Hell stop yeah. listening because I feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, I was like, what do you mean? Why would I stop listening? Oh, wait, you're talking to the, the there's other people here. <laughs> to Hello, the other people. <laughs> Welcome, welcome back to. You're like I was so engrossed. Yeah, I, I was like, no, yeah, of course that's. People. Yeah, preach. Oh wait, yeah, there's other people listening. Yes, okay. 
no, I, yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's kind of when that lesson was driven home for me, I think was whenever I was able to finally, like, I'm not losing money out of my bank account every month, kind of staring down the barrel of something, you know, because I mean, it was compounded by a sense of worthlessness, right? Because I was trying to, I was a bachelor, I held bachelors of arts, right? I have a degree. So I'm going to interviews, but I don't have the clothes. I don't have the, you know, like calm. I don't have, I, I'm crying in the middle of these interviews because I'm so desperate to get a job. And that's not something that they, they tell you a lot of things not to do whenever you're interviewing and looking like you're on the verge of tears is absolutely one of the things you're definitely not supposed to do whenever you're interviewing. Being a desperate person is not something you're supposed to be when you're trying to get a job. Even if you need the job desperately, you have to fake it. And I had no ability to fake it. I, I had no ability to fake it to the extent that my boss, who was my active boss, like I, I had a promotion within the job that I have. So she knew I was a competent worker, but she was like, I don't know if you're ready for a full 40 hour work week in my interview. And I'm like, mm, working 40 hours for you would mean that I worked 30 hours less a week. So I don't understand what you're getting at. <laughs> And she was pointing out, she was, she was basically pointing out the fact that I had mental health days that I had to take because I was so cripplingly depressed. So like, I was sick a lot. And so that was what she was thinking was like, oh, I'm going to take a chance on this person, but like, it might bite me in the ass because she's gone all the time. But like, guess what? I stopped being gone all the time when I had enough money to feed myself and had like a, a, a nice house. Uh, you know, like I was in the same house. It's not any nicer, but it was a house that wasn't like ma- losing me money. You know, like it, it really does like just to compound your soapbox, it really does make a hell of a lot of difference. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you also had 30, like 30 more hours to do your own shit. It's in. So it that's kind of the hardest part of where we're at, like in working in mental health is that you have people who come in who do who very much need and do benefit from therapeutic services. Okay. Because there is something to be said for the coping skills you can learn in those opportunities to even just help mitigate that stress and maybe use it for good or something, right? Like therapists are trying to do their best to help you manage with the resources and in the situation you have. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't fix everything. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it is really hard when somebody comes in, they're like, I'm having this persistent problem. And I'm like, oh, you have teeth or that are rotting out, no money to pay for any dental work. And there's no free dental clinic because there's only one that happens once every six months. And it's a 45 minute drive away from you where you live. And it's only free dental students. And you kind of have to show up at six in the morning because it's first come, first serve. I love how you became British for that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's my coping voice. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know how you talk about this book without talking about structural uh, inequities in our (laughs) government and society's mental health structures. You could talk about dog treatment because I got kind of stressed out about how she's talking about training the dogs. I was like, no. Your dog oh needs more God. run. Or you could only focus on the chapter where she's talking about how they got lost in the woods because I almost pissed myself laughing when because she was a kid and her and her little sister and her mom got lost in the woods for the listeners to read. And it was so fucking funny. Everything that they tried to do to mess with her <laughs> and get back and get home and the way the mom was coping with it, I almost pissed myself laughing. It was so good. I had a similar moment when she was trying to go to a party after 
having dental surgery. She had dental surgery and she was trying to convince her mom to go to a party. <laughs> and you just have this moment where you step out and you see the mom just realize that from the outside looking in, it looked like she was belittling and making fun of a daughter who was like not <laughs> fully able to do things when really it was her daughter who's perfectly fully able to do all of the things that she's making fun of her for not being able to do. Drugged. But she's just drugged. But it, it, but to the outside, it looked like that might have been like just the reality of the daughter. So like, why are you making fun of her, you evil bitch? Oh, God, I was like, yeah. this is amazing. This is me as a parent, like, whatever, I uh, I guess I'm taking you high to a party because I'm, like, looking at around and everyone thinks I'm the bad guy. <laughs> I just, like, pop, puck, I want to go hog. <laughs> like, you just, because she couldn't feel her mouth and, uh, uh, those are so good. The Definitely the childhood chapters really fucking hit home. Like, the letter from 13-year-old her or whatever, 11-year-old, I don't remember, <laughs> Um, but like that one hit me it just all those childhood chapters just yes oh god i laughed so hard and the goose the goose is loose the goose. in the house yes that chapter well, fucked and- me up too was- i i love how she had like photographic evidence for it because she's like this is definitely going in my blog and nobody's gonna believe that this happened to me so i'm going to go ahead and take a video of it and then screen cap it onto the book because i knew i was gonna talk about it because she'd been what (laughs) she'd been blogging for like four years at that point (sighs) and this is the part where i talked to you about the fact that i laughed and cried in the second book that is a much more relevant much more recent book where life gets even harder for her and she pulls out Mm. even more deranged childhood stories and the mixture still works i think this book probably still works for people who are in that point in time for their life like i really do like i i I was profoundly impacted by this book even though my dumb ass was like "Mm, yeah that's normal i'm not clinically depressed even though she's saying that she's active she's clinically depressed she's like i'm clinically depressed if you relate to this you probably are too and i'm like yeah no that's totally relatable i'm not gonna do anything about anything because that's not me (laughs) you know and then later looking back on it you can use it as a tool to be like oh yeah no i'm not depressed anymore i can definitely say that the book did get uncomfortable for me in some places and i did feel negative and positive emotions but it was written with such empathy and such creativity mm-hmm. and humor. It denoted an emotional depth to it, certainly using herself as the punchline, that it's it's a worthwhile read. It's probably one I'll go back to in a few years, um, if not mm-hmm. sooner. Got to get through everything else first. But it, <laughs> it's definitely one I would still support other people picking up and reading. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want the fact that I'm no longer in that part of my life. Because I did, I mean, I put this book on the list because I was like, yeah, no, impactful books. This is 100% something that I loved. But uh, this is the first one that I reread and was like, oh, I don't know why. I don't know why I like that so much. <laughs> I mean, I know why, but it's not it's not triggering the same emotions in me that the other ones did. And that makes me a little sad, but it also makes me happy because it's like, yeah, like it was an unhealthy level of relativity to my current situation at the time of of reading so yeah no this is this is good this is a good thing this is growth that i'm happy that i can demonstrate but i would recommend people pick up her solutions and other problems as well because i mean like it's a little harder 
the subject matter is is a little bit different. It hits weird in contrast to this one, but like it's got that same amount of heart and genuineness and empathy in it that this one does. And she's grown in a way that I think it's interesting to be able to look at. You know, for her, I'm happy for her growth, but also like sad for her uh, ability to keep doing that past a certain point in her life. You know, like right now I'm in this nice little like stable zone, you know, and I'm sure that there's going to be more rough waters ahead, you know, like it's not like it's always going to be nice and calm. You know, this is the calm before the storm, but like to see somebody who you can, I mean, like I, I really feel like you can get a sense of her as a person from this book and I, I want better for her than what she experiences, you know, like I, I just want her to be happy because like, goodness, she made me happy reading both of these books, but also made me the good kind of sad. So yeah, like I still love these books. It's just, oof, I did not love myself back then, <laughs> you know, yeah. mm, it's a different. It happened. Hey, you ready for another awkward segue? Yes. My ass is numb. That means we've done a good job. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for listening. If you say have something to say about today's book, please, you know, hit us up. We have a Discord. We have a fireside. We have an email. We have all of these things and more on a link tree that you can get to. And if you like us and you want us to keep doing what we're doing and you support our aspirations to have slightly better audio and shenanigans mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you can maybe con- consider buying us a comic or a coffee however you however you want to view that we we run off of both here at girls talk comics yes yeah or you can buy my next refill of medications it only costs a dollar 25 hey you know what Good for you. I'm proud of you. That's I'm a good saying. number for your for your refills. One Ko-Fi donation pays for nine months worth of medication. Damn. Think about that. You get yeah. it. Yeah. You I'm get just saying, that. no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. She needs help. Please. Think of the children. No. Um. That I work with, please. <laughs> that she works with. Yeah. That's not, I mean. <laughs> God. We're we're going off the rails. The butt's numb and so is the brain. But thank you for listening. Yeah. We've kind of done our preachy nonsense again. But this is the Cringy Book Club. So, you know, you asked for it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Practical <laughs> illusions I don't trust. I just mm. like. Which I guess is the point of them because they're illusions. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we read a book. To be talking about. Yeah, we did. (laughs) 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 This is what years of synchronicity will do to you. Uh, Yeah. So that segues nicely. (laughs) (laughs) We just know now. I I was wondering if like you happen to spot her rolling around like a disturbed, like a disturbed ferret whenever you were down for the baby shower or not? Because sometimes people will like be staring I, at my stomach and I'm like, oh, excuse that. I'm sorry, I have no control over what she does. <laughs> You're like, I I don't know what you want me to do, but stopping this, I cannot. It's not happening. <laughs>